This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Welcome back to another episode of Dirtcast. I am your co-host, Megan Reynolds. And I am your other co-host, Madeline Davies. Um, Megan. Yes. You don't sound very excited. I'm (laughs) I'm extremely excited. Which is weird because it's a very special day. Oh, God. Is it? It's Megan's birthday today. Uh, It's my birthday. (laughs) Oh, my God. Age. No. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's Megan's birthday, and we, as a gift to her, we have a guest that absolutely rules. That's true. Pamela DeBar, who is a writer, rock historian, musician, and legendary groupie. She wrote her debut memoir was called I'm With The Band, Confessions of a Groupie. It turns 30 this year. We talked to her about a bunch of stuff, um, writing memoirs, about being a groupie, why that's not a bad thing. But everybody wants to be a rock star or be with a rock star. And whoever says they don't is a liar. Well, a thing that we didn't talk to her about is that she was the inspiration for Penny Lane in Almost Famous. We did not talk to her about that. That is a shame, but she was. I just think it's like a little interesting fact for y'all out there. It's a fun little Easter egg about her. Um, But that is later. I mean, I suppose we kind of have to start off on a bit of a somber note. Mm -hmm. Um, There was... The most fatal shooting in U.S. history at a country music festival in Las Vegas um, on Sunday night. Yep. Like, I'm sure you all have seen news clippings about it and seen the photos, and it's just horrific. And I don't know. It's uh, it's like the tragic price we keep paying for America loving their guns so much yeah. and for letting white guys kind of do whatever they want. Yep. I mean, I guess— the thing is, and I'm not trying to make like what we do into anything heroic because right. we are just two silly idiots. Yes. But it's like you can't let that type of thing stop you from enjoying culture and you right. can't let it stop you from loving music and from, you know, gathering together and experiencing art together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so on that note, um, onward and upward, I guess, yeah. it's, uh, obviously like there's nothing – Nothing that can be said that will, like, soothe this wound. There's nothing, yeah. We would be remiss not to mention this. It was a terrible tragedy. Um, Onward and upward, like you said. Let's get in to the dirtiest dirt. Let us, shall we? In good news, (laughs) Hugh Uh, Hefner is dead. That's right. Yep. Hugh Hefner died. 
He was like 91. He's quite quite old. Ugh. Um goodbye, Hugh. I guess um I don't really have much thoughts on Hugh Hefner's passing, but one person that did have a thought about Hugh Hefner's passing that I thought was shitty was uh, our best friend Josh Whedon. He uh he had a tweet. The tweet was as follows. It is bad. I apologize in advance for how bad it is. Um he tweeted, "Wait, is it possible Hugh Hefner did good and bad things?" But but robot head explodes, humans escape from robot hot tub. Ugh, the most Joss Whedon tweet of all time, first the, of all. Yeah. I mean, and of course, if you're not familiar with the backstory, Joss Whedon is a very outspoken male feminist yeah. who uh, it recently was revealed was basically um, emotionally abusing and cheating on his wife of many years. Yeah. I mean, there is this argument, right, about like, I mean, first of all, we'll just say, like, fuck Joss Whedon. Yeah. Like, you are obviously talking about yourself in yes, this situation. and 100%. In a way, that's kind of perfect because Hugh Hefner is kind of uh, posited as this um, hero of, you know, of free speech mm-hmm. and free expression. Right. And that he was this person who kind of fought back against uh, the Puritanism yes. of the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And he was really into civil rights. And he had... Um, kind of all of these things going for him. But at the same time, he very much used that as a guard to defend himself against, like, very extreme exploitation of women. Right. It was like his get-out-of-jail card for being, for Playboy, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I am by no means anti-pornography. Same. I think, like, you know, if you're an adult and you want to do that, and that's, I mean... Live your life. Go for it. Who am I to stop you? I think... What makes it weird is that it was just, like, this one guy getting really, really rich and powerful off of all of these women right. who have kind of just, like, disappeared. Right. Um, you know, there's, like, the very few Playboy playmates who you kind of still remember. Right. But um, they were all sort of, like, blips. Yeah. For his gain. Yeah. And it's, like, it's not like he took care of them into old age, you no, know? It's, like, and you hear about what happened in the Playboy Mansion yeah. if you were, like, one of his girlfriends— Like, Holly Madison has written about it pretty extensively. Her book. And then I think Kendra Wilkinson to, like, basically hit back at Holly Madison was just, like, she was the girl who had to clean up all the cum after the group (laughs) sex. She walked around like, this is my house. Get out. That was her life forever. That was her life. But it didn't end up that way because Hef did not want it with her. You know, she could have, like, you know, stuck it up the right hole for her to get pregnant, you know? But she didn't. (laughs) She was the cleanup crew. Oh, no. Oh, no. She was the cleanup crew, and she's embarrassed. So. And, like, if you're going to live that kind of life, like, you got to be open because this is what happened. And I was like, that does not actually uh, negate Holly Madison's argument that this place was horrible. It just makes it, like, what, like, that just fucking sucks. Like, Christ almighty. It's almost too perfect where it's like, maybe there is a God. Mm. And I don't mean a good God. No, a vengeful. This just seems, it's just too much of a parody to be real, and yet it's real. Yeah. Um, it turns out Brett Ratner is directing the Hugh Hefner oh my God, biopic. That's right. that's and right. it's going to be starring Jared Leto. Which is... Get Joss on as a screenwriter. Oh, my God. Then it'll be the, be- the best movie of all time. Maybe like cast Scott Can as something. Ew. Oh, 
Jared Leto as Hugh Hefner, like, it's perfect, I think. It's disgusting. I just, Jared Leto, I, what worries me is that I feel like Jared Leto gets very method with all of his roles. Yeah. Um, like he did for like su- when, uh, Suicide Squad, like sending people like crazy shit in the mail, like being kind of like generally a creep to really sort of embody the essence of whatever character he's playing. I would love to see if he's going to fucking get method to be Hugh Hefner. I hope he doesn't. I love um, that there's like a Laurence Olivier quote where he was working in a movie with Dustin Hoffman Mm -hmm. and Dustin Hoffman was a method actor and Mm -hmm. was like, wasn't sleeping. He was getting really skinny. He was like trying to embody this, you know, this role. Mm -hmm. Um, And just after weeks of this, Mm -hmm. at one point, Laurence Olivier just says to him like, it's called acting for a reason. <laughs> uh, and I think about that a lot whenever, like, you hear about someone getting so annoying as a method actor. Right. It's like, how about you just be a good actor? Just, like, be a fucking actor. It's a job. You can put this job aside when you, like, go home to do whatever it is, sit in your meditation room, whatever the fuck it is Jared does in his off time. I mean, I mean, he does, he performs with 30 Seconds to Mars. Oh, my God. I mean, I do. Um, like <laughs> Brett Ratner, though, is a director choice. Just like that, like it's thick-necked, ruddy-faced, coke-bloated. It's so good. Uh, weirdo. It's as, perfect. Yeah. It's perfect. It's just like it's out of it's out of an entourage plot line. Yes. Yes, it is. Except and for like Vinny would be playing. <laughs> um, so good luck to that movie. Yes, I hope it turns out as good as the Linda Lovelace movie, which oh, was boy. also not good. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I wish that, yeah, everyone involved, great. Joss Whedon, you're a fucking dong. Hugh Hefner, RIP, but you are also kind of a dong. You are good and bad, like literally every single fucking human being. Yeah, you can make that argument for almost anybody. Everyone is good and bad. And also, I think like this, it's not a new idea that Joss is introducing. Like, what if... Yeah. Hugh Hefner was complicated and did some good things and also did a lot of really bad things. And I don't think anyone's denying no, that. No, of course not. Because we would be like, people have eyes. People, could, It's like, I see that argument lobbed around a lot on Twitter about like certain politicians or like people in Trump's sphere. Like this person, like Kellyanne Conway, like she's good and bad. Like fuck, like fucking eat a dick. I know. Right. Like, ugh. I mean, like, you have dinner with a Republican, and they're always, like, the nicest they're people. They're nice. It's fine. But, like, they're still bad. Like, like your voting decisions uh, <laughs> literally murder people. So. Right. But, like, we could sit down and have a conversation at dinner. Like, I, I'm sure I could have had a conversation with Hugh Hefner. Well, Joss Whedon. Let's, let's backtrack. I could have dinner with Joss Whedon. I'd probably be annoyed at the end of it. But I don't think I would get, like, a, a vibe of, like— you're, you know, you're the devil. I think if you had dinner with Hugh Hefner, you would have to like chew his food for him. Yeah, it would be spoon feed. Him. It would be like a Alicia Silverstone feeding her baby out of her mouth situation. Oh yeah, that was so my, one of my favorite, one of my favorite moments. Baby burden, baby burden. <laughs> um. So yeah. In conclusion, everyone mentioned is in bad con- yeah. and good. In and conclusion, just shut up. Hugh Hefner's dead. Hugh Hefner has died. Good night. Uh, <laughs> it's 
Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, uh, as as Hugh Hefner's spirit left left this mortal realm, um, one other new spirit two. entered two. Well, no one has. Okay, the potential of two, and then one actual. I think is what I'm seeing here. Um, we'll deal with the baby, the actual baby that was born first, Spidey. Oh, Spidey. Yes, Spidey. Uh, that would be Spencer Pratt and Heidi Pratt. What was Heidi's real maiden name? Um, her Montag. maiden name was Heidi Montag. That's yes. right. She had the baby. Right. Its name is Gunner Stone. It's a boy. Gunner, Gunner Stone. Gunner G U N N E R, not A R, which I think is like common. The regular spelling of that. I hope they get it vaccinated. Yeah, that'd be great. That'd <laughs> just be awesome. remember, just remember, guys. Like, no matter how much info wars you're into, I'm talking directly to Spencer and Heidi yeah, right now, who are listening. Um, and no matter how many crystals you keep around, like, if you knew Alex Jones, you were in like a secret clique, you know. So, like crystals. Yeah, like Whoa, yeah, like when I started so buying crystals, it was so out there. Now it's trendy, and everyone buys crystals. So you still got to get your baby vaccinated. Yeah, if the baby gets mumps. Your fucking baby has mumps, like Christ Almighty. Get that shit taken care of. Um, and that goes for everybody. Everybody who has a child vaccinated. Um, so that's great. Good. Vaccinated by um, Khloe Kardashian. So Khloe Kardashian is rumoredly pregnant. Rumoredly pregnant. With uh, Tristan um, Thompson. Thompson's baby. Mm-hmm. He is a Cleveland Cavalier. Yes. Her rumored pregnancy was announced like the day-ish after... Why? Thank you. I just completely blanked on that Jenner's name. What a what a blessing. <laughs> My mind blissfully was empty for like two seconds. It was awesome. Which um, I found very funny because, and this is a very ungracious thought, but yes, the first thing I thought or, uh-huh. or, you know, first thing that came to mind uh, when the Kylie thing started going mm. around about her pregnancy was, I bet Chloe is so jealous. Yep. I don't think that's ungracious at all, though, because Chloe has made it very clear throughout her entire public life, like on the show at least, that she has really wanted to have a child. And like Courtney's had like a billion kids. Kim is like making all of the babies. Like their babies fucking everywhere in her family. And she is just like, hello, excuse me. Yeah. My turn. Well, the weird thing is Tristan uh, Thompson, Mm -hmm. he had a baby in the past year with another woman. It's a nine-month-old baby. So he's basically going to have, like, Irish twins, but with two different mothers. Yeah, that's fun. I hope the uh, first uh, mother is okay with all of this. I have not heard much about what the uh, how the first mother feels yeah. about any of this. I've just heard that, you know, I hope she's okay with it, too. But this is a Holy Trinity situation. And it that is. Kim has confirmed <laughs> uh, that... 
she is has a surrogate who's pregnant right, right. now. Even though that's been rumored for a while, I think. And she's talked about like yeah. wanting to use this because she's had really miserable pregnancies yeah. for both. Um, Saint and North. Well, Saint and North. Little angels. There was like a blind item a while back that was like this like reality TV matriarch. Mm-hmm. Her thing that she wants yes. so badly for the show is to have three of her daughters pregnant mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. And now it's obviously very clear. I mean, it was clear from the jump that yeah. it was Chris. Uh, right. But now it's extra clear, even though Kim is not uh, herself physically pregnant. Right. But that's just so crazy. I don't think it's going to help the ratings the way that Chris maybe thinks it is. No, I don't think so either. I mean, it's just like, I think it, it won't help the ratings because it's too, I think the optics of it are that it's like very calculated and not necessarily organic. I mean, I'm sure it was, you know, but yeah. like just the way that it was like, it was like Kylie's pregnant. Oh my God, Chloe's pregnant. Oh my God, just the rollout of yeah. it. Like it just, it's too, it, you can't, the thing about the Kardashians is like, about the show at least is like you, as a viewer, you see, you see the cracks, like you can see into the wings, Yeah, which is fine. It's like sitting, yeah, but like, if you see too much into the wings, if you see too much of the behind the scenes stuff, if those cracks start to show, I think it starts to become very uh, gross. I mean, it's already kind of gross to begin with. And I love the car. I love that show. Right. But it, I think once you can fully, like when Chris finally, like, you know, unhinges her jaw and you can see like all of her teeth, you can see how like the, yeah. whatever lives inside there, the little the little monster. Sure. I mean, I feel like it's it's been shown. It has. This I but this could be, I mean, do you think this is like then this is just like average? Yeah, it does I was not surprised one bit. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there's anything that they do that is not calculated. I sure. think like the Paris robbery of Kim was like the first thing that was completely out of their control. Because of the way she reacted to it, I think. Well, and because she didn't, she well, literally had no control. Obviously, Whereas, right, Whereas like right, I think right. she was very used to being like every part of her life is yeah. curated. I also think like maybe it's a miscalculation considering how young Kylie is. Mm-hmm. I mean like she's an adult, you know. But she's, I mean, she's 20. She can do this if she wants to. Do whatever she wants. You know, my mom was 21 when my brother was born. That's not... It's not unusual. Outrageous. Yeah. But I think, like, considering that, like, the public has kind of known her since she was a little girl. Nine-year-old, yeah. And she's kind of always been sort of this, like, tragic figure. Right. I wonder if... It's not going to be, like, a cute, like, Brady Bunch thing. Like, we're all under one roof. It's just, like, we've seen, like, what happens... What happened with Rob. Mm -hmm. We, you know, it's just, like, I feel like for the past several years... We did an episode on this a while mm-hmm. back about um, with Kate Nibbs from The Ringer. The whole thing was just sort of like it's just been like the dark underbelly has shown. Yeah. But I mean, I think that I mean, because Rob is essentially like the pariah of the family, I think all of the mistakes, whatever mistakes they did make Chris made with Rob, I think that was like a good that was like a good blueprint for her to like not. She's going to handle whatever this Kylie situation differently. Do you think she was in control of the Rob thing? I thought that was like the twist was that That, that Black China stepped in and did what Chris usually does. Um, And then Chris just sort of had to like adapt to it. I mean, I think there is probably like a struggle behind this, possibly something behind the scenes that we like are not privy to, a a power struggle between Chris and Black China. But Black China obviously— God bless her. She won. She won that one. Yeah. Um, but Chris will not let that happen again. Yeah. She is, I mean, 
like for as no. like dastardly as she is, mm-hmm. she is a genius. She's a fucking genius. I would not cross that woman. She scares me. I mean, if you're to the point where you're like willing to like use your own children as currency, it's like what else? Oh. <laughs> what else do you have? I mean, all right, it's cool. like she's just like Medea, basically. Just do it. It's fine. I meant the Greek Medea, not the Tyler Perry. Yeah, Medea. we were not talking about Tyler Perry. No. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> just to clarify. <clears throat> so can't wait to see when all of these children are born and to watch the empire double. When they drop. When they drop. (laughs) Um, And then, oh God, the last thing is also Kardashian related. I'm very sorry, but it's about the one. I just want to say, Megan, you added this bullet. I did. It's on her. It is. I'm sorry. I just thought it was, I'd been waiting for this to happen. So in last year sometime, Kendall, who is the one that doesn't get as much shine because she kind of, I feel like she kind of just like models and keeps her head down and likes to sort of avoid controversy. She just like models and is on Instagram a bunch. She did a very ill-advised Pepsi commercial that uh, featured her sort of like curing racism by like handing a cop a Pepsi. It was a very, it was not a good, it was not a good look. Um, everyone was very mad about it. Uh, right, got taken so. down. I think within like three hours. Yeah, pretty quickly. And you know, one of the things that I remember thinking was like they're going to address this on the show because they always do, and they did. When I first got this offer, I mean, it's a huge company. The people I was following were so iconic and amazing. Michael Jackson's done it. Britney Spears has done it. Beyonce has done it. Pink. The list goes on. But after I saw the reaction, and I and I read what people had to say about it, I most definitely saw what was what went wrong. Like, I just felt so stupid. The fact that I would offend other people or hurt other people was definitely not the intent. This was her first, like, big scandal to weather. I mean, there's no way that's true that she didn't yeah, know what, it was about. No, that is a I lie. Think, I believe that she, like, thought it was going to be, like, powerful. Yes, yeah, she probably thought that it had, like, a message that was, like, a fine message. Well, it clearly was like trying to be like the I'd like to buy the world a coke yeah. of of like 2017 to seven, whenever the fuck it was. I don't time has stopped moving or is moving too fast. I can't tell. <laughs> Unsure. Um, so I think she probably thought she was going to be a part of something like kind of like revolutionary right. advertising where right. there's like some Don Draper behind the scenes right. who is pitching it. And then it turns out you did not read the room. No, it was um, not that. So I feel like there's no way she did not see a storyboard for it. You know, no, there was no was, way that she wasn't aware she was handing a Pepsi to a cop. Yeah, no, she, um, at a you know at a very vague rally for right. equality, like a very like a diverse a rally full of like not just white people. Yeah, for like yeah for something. Um, the signs were all just like power to the people. Yeah. Like hey, we're all cool. Oh I don't God. know. <laughs> so. She felt bad about it. She, but like, whatever. She fucking knew. And you know what? Good. I mean, also like this type of like social cause exploitation by advertising is by no means new. It is something that they have been doing for decades. Yeah, for decades. She's just another cog. She's just like another bullet point in the like long and storied history of this happening. But I have a feeling this is not going to affect her any more than it already has. No, I mean, Fashion Week just happened. And yeah, she and was she was fine. All over it. Yeah, so she's... Despite there, being a terrible model. So she's it's a bad like, model. <laughs> they're Teflon. It's very... They're very... Nothing gets to them. The card. I mean, it's like... 
It's impressive. Here's my last question about the Kardashians. When do you think the show will end? I I don't know because obviously like E wants it to become a hit again. Yeah. But everything they've thrown at the public has not worked. Right. And I think one thing that Kate Nibbs talked about was that um, previously the Kardashians sort of had a very fun element. Yeah. It was like, it was silly. You were kind of laughing at them, mm-hmm. but the stuff was all laughable. It was like it was sister not... stuff and like light stuff. Yeah. And it was like gross, conspicuous consumption, but it sure. didn't feel that harmful. <laughs> right. And that it was just like, oh, these are just like this like weird, rich Calabasas socialites, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like strangely new money in a way. Yeah. Um, just being annoying and silly and it was yeah. like fun to hate them and it was fun to love them or right. whatever. Um, whereas now things have gotten so dark in a real way. <laughs> yeah. And that that's not really what people ever tuned in for. Was no. it was not uh it was not to see like real human suffering. Yeah. Which no is one what, wanted to like watch Kim cry about the robbery or like this Robin Black China bullshit. Like no like yeah. all of Chloe's stuff with Lamar, like Yeah, it just became uh I think like too real, really challenging for people. I mean, and I think like before she transitioned, Caitlyn Jenner mm. was like kind of considered just like this like weird dad who yeah. you know just like got manicures and isn't that funny? And yeah. then it's like, oh no, this was actually something that she was dealing with yep. internally and uh, you know struggling with. Yeah, you know, knowing that she was actually a woman, right? And so I think that part of it, and then, yeah, the Black China stuff and, like, all of the weird allegations of abuse right. and, you know, that type of thing. Right. Just made it, like, we we saw too much how the sausage got made. Yeah. And it was a violent, not good. bad process. No, it's not. If you watch regular sausage get made, just, like, as it's not, not, not cute. I don't know when it will. I, th- there is a part of me that thinks I will be, like, 97 years old. And some iteration of this will still be playing in like my Wally, like fat people, but old people also transporter device that like that will be, I've, there's, I feel like it'll still be on for a really long time, which is sad. I mean, I think E maybe needs another hit. Yeah. Because I don't think they're doing particularly well. I mean, the thing is, is that like E and Bravo and all those, those networks are owned, I think, by NBC. NBC. Yeah. And so, they're not like struggling, struggling mm-hmm. just because like Bravo's doing so well. Right. And then E reruns, puts Housewives in syndication. Mm-hmm. And so they have that. But I think before the Kardashians go, they need to find they need to groom the next thing. They need to find the new the new Kardashians. Right. Like whoever will bring back what the Kardashians were. And their, their essence. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. Well, hopefully it will end in my lifetime. <laughs> is what I'm hoping because I feel like that's I just it would be kind to them to live the rest of their live their dotage in like relative silence. <sighs> we'll see if they can even handle that anymore. <laughs> I doubt it. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. 
Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. On the line with us today, we are so excited to be speaking with best-selling writer, rock historian, musician, and legendary groupie, Pamela Daybar. Welcome, Pamela. Hi. I love the way you say my my name correctly. A lot of people don't. (laughs) (laughs) I actually, um, I'll I'll tell you the truth. I like listened to you say it several times because I wanted to (laughs) nail it. (laughs) Nothing worse than mispronouncing someone's name right from the jump, I feel. so. I wonder how many times in my life I say the S's are silent. Yeah. I'm sure (laughs) countless. Des des bares. (laughs) Yes. Oh, yes. Des bares, des bars, des bars. (laughs) Um, so your book, Let It Bleed, came out this year, which is a sort of writing instructional for memoir. And your debut memoir, I'm With the Band, Confessions of a Groupie, came out. It turned 30 this year. Yes, it turned 30. It's coming out again in England in the spring on a 30-year you know, anniversary edition, which is pretty exciting. Nice. I was going to ask if you were doing anything to celebrate the birthday. Oh, yeah. I'm, I've been doing a lot of readings and... Uh, I love to read and do Q and A's with people. Some of the questions are just outrageous, <laughs> <I bet. laughs> and some I just won't answer. So, oh, yeah, perfect. fair enough. Yeah, um, has the reception to the book, your debut memoir, changed over the past three decades? Yes, certainly has. I'm now perceived much more as an author and a, you know, like you said, historian as well as a groupie. And they, in the beginning, it was like, oh, this is just this slutty groupie girl trying to. <laughs> tell all and kiss and tell. And if you've read the book, you know, that's not what it is. It's just the story of a girl growing up in that amazing rock renaissance era in the right city, right time, right age, right everything. Mm -hmm. And of course, I included my relationships, but that's not what it's about, really. Well, and you kept such extensive records. You know, you were, as you say in Let It Bleed, you were journaling basically every day since you got your first journal as a kid. Yes. I, when I got married, I, it, it became much more sporadic, but I certainly kept incredibly detailed diaries while I was living that lifestyle. I just knew that some days people would care about it. It's very interesting. It's amazing to be in print with that book for 30 years. Um, it's pretty unusual. Well, I imagine it's also amazing to recognize in a moment that you're like living a profound experience as opposed to just recognizing it in retrospect. Yes, I absolutely knew it. I knew that it was just a huge experience that was a rare experience, just being around these rock giants and also, you know, living that kind of dreamy lifestyle in Hollywood with the Zappa family and, you know, living with them. And I just went to Moon Zappa's 50th birthday yesterday. Oh. I, I could not believe she was turning 50. I met her when she was six months old. I was going to say, that's the kid you babysat. <laughs> that's amazing. I know. Wild. <laughs> so we're watching the um, VH1 documentary, Let's Spend the Night Together, before we started recording. And one thing you say is that what allowed you to become close to the musicians was that after making eye contact with Paul McCartney at your first concert, you sort of realized that rock stars were just people and, you know, accessible. So how do you feel about the fact that your ability to see them as less special is what makes you actually special? 
and as a group. I a. don't see them as less special in any way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just see them as human beings like we are, which they are. Sure. Uh, they have flesh and blood and they go to the bathroom yep. and everything, but I don't see them as less special. No way. I mean, I still, for instance, I will drive miles, endless miles to see Dion, who was my teenage idol post Elvis. Sure. And, you know, for I was a member of his fan club and everything. And I, I will actually fly to New York to see him play because he plays so rarely. So I still see them as incredibly special artists. And when you connect with an artist, it opens something up in your heart and your soul. You know, it's a, it's, it's a very special thing. And I still see musicians as incredibly important special people. But yes, they're human like yeah. me. And yes, I had my own girl, all-girl group, so I got a little taste of right. it, of that mm-hmm. lifestyle. You know, it's quite an intense lifestyle. Is there a way that you manage, though... Did you feel intimidated by them at any point? Just as, you know, this, you grew up, I think, in Reseda, right? Yes, I was very, very young. So, of course, I was intimidated by them. And they were young, too. Right. But I, you know, I write about it and I'm with the band. I had to act as if I belonged in those rooms with those people. So I, I learned how to actually become that person I was acting as if. Right. right. Because we're all one, you know, we're all connected one. We're one entity, really, if you if you want to get cosmic about it. Sure. <laughs> Might as yeah. well. I, uh, I knew how important and special it was. And I yes, there were times, especially at Altamont, when I was with Mick Jagger after that horrible experience. And and I had to, you know rub his shoulders and stuff while he talked about quitting the band. It was a very uh, difficult, heady experience. And I had to, you know, believe I belong there. Right. Gosh, I can hardly even fathom. I know. (laughs) Um, It might as well have, like, happened in outer space. Like, that's how, like, out of my world that feels. (laughs) Yeah. In the documentary, though, you also say that you want to reclaim the word groupie and strip it of negative connotations. And so I'm wondering what that means to you. Well, I've been working on that from day one. Yeah. It became a pejorative pretty early on. I first heard the word in probably 1968 when I first started hanging out with Led Zeppelin. And they, someone called me a groupie. So oh, she must be a groupie. And I'm, oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. I'm with a group, I guess I'm, that's okay. And it was just a word, you know, but then it quickly became, you know, a finger pointing jeer Mm -hmm. at people from, by people who could not get backstage, who saw us as just loose tarts. You know, we were just coming out of the fifties mentality where women were subjected to being lesser than men. You know, it's true. It's just, and it still goes on in much of the world, but in America, we were just coming out of a little bit of that, where women, you know, I was taking the birth control pill, I was claiming myself, and that upset a lot of people. Yeah, that actually um, is one thing that I really love about your writing, is just, like, how joyful you are when I feel like because people are so judgmental about female sexuality, I can imagine that there's an audience that want you to paint yourself sort of as a sexual victim or somehow like having been taken advantage exactly. of. Exactly. Like I was subjugating myself to these people, like I was submissive to them. And it was just not that. It was a very equal exchange. 
young men love young women. I mean, (laughs) breaking news. I mean, that's just isn't that profound. I mean, it was just it's just the way it was. You know, I was in the I was the right age. I was I looked the part, you know, I mean, I, I was happy to be with them. And I love their music. And any man, no matter what he does for his living, wants to be appreciated for what he does. That's just the way it goes. Yeah, so that's I truly really yeah. appreciated what they were doing. Right. And and they love that. It's and, and it wasn't something I was putting on. I right. love the damn music, you know? <laughs> right. Well, and it's not like you were like, oh, I'll have sex with this person so I can get close to the music. It was, you know, a part of the fun, I would imagine. Yeah, and a lot of times we we were just friends with them. The GTOs had a lot of my band, the girls together outrageously. We had a lot of friends in the industry, and we would take them shopping, and we would watch soccer with them, you know, the British boys who came over, and they wanted friends to hang out with, so there was a lot of that, too. They wanted to also meet Frank Zappa, and Frank (laughs) wanted to meet them. So it was was basically a love fest. Yeah, it was a community. (laughs) Yeah, people can't imagine that now. That that you could walk into the Whiskey A Go Go and see all of the stones, a couple of birds, a beetle or two, you know, <laughs> Captain Beefheart, and all in one room. That's so and that's, crazy. Everybody hung out then. There was there was no danger. I mean, there was some danger, but you know, it. it no one had like John Lennon had not been assassinated. Mm-hmm. It, it felt like a fairly safe time before hard hard drugs really hit the scene. How do you think that fan and groupie culture is different today than it was in in the 70s? Well, the only difference is that you can't get near the major stars. Right. So it's access. Yeah. But nothing has changed in the love and adoration of the music and the people who make it. You know, true art will always inspire. It's not going to change. And true art is subjective to the listener or the or the looker. Like, for instance, if I stand in front of a Van Gogh painting, I'm transported into some other realm to where my whole being opens up and soaks in those brush strokes. And not everybody feels that way about Van Gogh or not everybody feels that way about Zeppelin or, you know, Dylan, for instance. I'm always fighting about Dylan. People who don't get him, I don't want to know them. I don't want to have those people in my reality. I'm still very much a big, big music lover. And, you know, I appreciate all music. It's not all my favorite music, but I appreciate the people who make it. Believe it or not, they're making a sacrifice. They're actually... Sometimes I see them as martyrs because you really give up your life if you're Eminem or, you know, I don't know, David Lee Roth. These people give up their lives to entertain us. And I I don't think going into it, a lot of them know what it's all about. But everybody wants to be a rock star or be with a rock star. And whoever says they don't is a liar. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're right. No, you're definitely... You're definitely right. Um, what are some acts that you like, uh, some more like current acts like that you like now? I, I've got to be honest. Mm-hmm. I listen to them. None of them. Uh, I mean, I, I admire them, what mm-hmm. they're doing. Some of them write some beautiful words. I, I compare everything to Dylan. It's horrible. <laughs> I compare the, the words to Dylan's words mm-hmm. or Leonard Cohen. Sure. And yeah. then I compare the music 
to, you know, Led Zeppelin and the doors mm. and the who and the birds and the stones, you know, so it's, nothing quite measures up. I was going to say extremely hard acts to follow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm always looking and listening. And the, the, the person closest to this for me is Jack White. And I'm still waiting for his greatest moment. And, nice. and, and he's going to surprise us. I loved his last album and I loved what he did with the White Stripes. And, but, you know, I still think his great moment is coming. So Jack White is someone that I've been watching. Um, there's a few young bands that I, you know, I don't know, Imagine Dragons. and I mean, there's a few, but I also love the singer-songwriter. That is my forte, so uh-huh. Dylan, of what I love. And Todd Snyder just kills me. He, he reflects his audience. I, I love to to listen to people who reflect what their audience, that's what Dylan did. You know, he reflected what was going on inside of his listeners. And Todd Snyder does that. He, he lives in Nashville. He's quite a character. He actually wrote a book. There's a chapter on groupies, which nice. he really appreciates them. I think most musicians do, and they, a lot. some of them won't admit it, but... <laughs> He wrote a whole chapter on groupies, which I'm heavily featured. Oh, <laughs> as you should be. <laughs> when you say you're the most famous groupie in the world, I'm proud of it. Good, you should, you as should you be. should be exactly. Ladies and gentlemen, what are you doing? What do you mean? I'm just keep our, it simple. Uh, I'm making the promo. Just keep it simple. Just say, hey, we're the Brav Bros. Two guys that talk about Bravo. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we're the Brav Bros. No. Oh. Dude, stop with the voice. Just the vo- keep it simple. I've seen promos on TV, dude. This is how you get the fans engaged. This is how you get listeners. We're trying to get listeners here. If we just say, oh, we're two dudes that talk about Bravo, people are going to get tired of it already. We need some oomph. All right, then fine. Let's try to do it with your voice. Brav Bros. Good job. So this might be sort of a sensitive question, and I'm wondering sort of in the wake of David Bowie passing, a lot came about about groupie culture just because of how young your acquaintance Lori Maddox was when she was involved with him. There is this whole idea of like the baby groupie. And I'm wondering how you feel kind of now about like these like young, very young women having sexual relationships with much more powerful men. And well, do you, you feel like perception? You listened to her interview, right? And yeah. in my documentary? I did. She was very happy about about that experience. She was. True. She has no regrets about it. Right. Anyways, after we had dinner, we went back to the Beverly Hilton. I'll never forget it because he was in this huge suite. And all of a sudden, David opens the door and he's wearing this gorgeous, beautiful kimono with that pale skin and that hair. He goes, Laurie, could you please come with me? (laughs) And he takes me into the bathroom. He's got a bath drawn and he drops the kimono off and gets into the bathtub. And says, can you wash my back? (laughs) People 
didn't just dream of stuff like this I mean, happening. it was just so it fabulous. It actually happened to yeah. you. He was very gentle with me, knowing that it was my first time. And then he decided to massage me and put me in the bath and relax me. And then he kind of took me out, put a robe on me and laid me on the bed. And just the rest is history. And none of those girls that I know, I mean, there probably are some, but none of them that I know have any regrets about those experiences. They put themselves into those fellows' spaces, mm -hmm. into their backstage, into their hotel rooms, because they wanted to be there. Sure. And yes, they were very young. It was a different time. It's hard to explain what it, what it was like back then. It was everything was, there was a lot of freedom going on. And it just, I never even thought, to be honest with you, I was only a few years older than they were. And I never even thought, wow, this, this shouldn't be happening. The only thing I didn't like about it, they were getting in my way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and they were really, really young. So it was a brand new thing for yeah. these guys who'd been on the road forever. Oh, oh, something new, a young, young girl. Okay. Mm. It wasn't really, I didn't see it as debauchery or anything. And, and, and a lot of people, you know, I, I fought for Lori when, when that came out, and she and I couldn't stand each other way back then, but that's long ago, right. so the, none of that's going on anymore. And I fought for her, and she stood up for herself, too. Yeah. And it was such, whoever brought that stuff up after Bowie died, threw them, you know? Sure. That was a terrible thing to try to bring up in, in the wake of that tragedy, you know? Well, I think that's one thing that's kind of important about your writing, is that it's letting kind of otherwise unheard voices dictate their own experiences. Mm -hmm. So people who we might paint as being a victim, you know, or like being used by the system right. can be like, actually, this is how My I choice. experienced yeah. this. And it was magical for me. Yes. And it was magical for Lori. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. That's what I mean. <laughs> and all those young girls who were, you know, flocking around these guys. Sure. No. And that's yeah, that's what I was trying right. to refer to. Definitely. I mean, it just it was a much more permissive time, I suppose. Yes, it was. And there was no AIDS. Now. And there was, you know, right. things really shifted around when AIDS came along. Yeah. Like, ooh, sex is bad. If sex is bad again, you know, right. there was a certain period of time where we did have a lot of freedom. Love-ins really existed, you know. Right. I, I think in probably 100 years or so, people are going to say, no, love-ins, that's a myth. There were no love-ins. Yeah, it's very like Greek. <laughs> there are photographs of me floating around love-ins. And I'm really so thrilled I was able to experience all of that. It's so amazing that you have just like all of this documentation and this footage and of yourself at that point in your life. Very few people taking photographs. I just posted some pictures I found because I just moved. I moved back to Reseda and I've been going through a lot of stuff. And I found the pictures I took of the birds and of Jim Morrison with my Argus C3 camera. I oh thought, oh, boy, I'm going to be a photographer. I'm going to take a lot of pictures I, that was it. I started living life, yeah. getting so wrapped up in it, I'd left my camera at home. Yeah. Well, you're don't, <laughs> you didn't want to view it that way. how amazing some of those pictures could have been, but I have a few. I just posted them on Instagram. <laughs> oh, my God. You have, I, I don't have the book in front of me, but you have a, a, a line in Let It Bleed about just how grateful you were to like live so like splendidly and wildly. And those aren't your exact words, but it was just something that I found really touching. Oh, yes. I've, I have no regrets at all. The only regrets I have are things I could have done and didn't do. Right. There was a time when Jagger was pursuing me in a big, big way. And I was living with this guy, Marty, 
who ran the, the trendy clothing store in London. And I just, he asked me to go on the road with him. He, he, he would call and ask me down to the studio. And I, and I never took him up on it because I thought I was in love with this guy. So there, there are things like that that I would shift around. And, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and Hendrix hit on me when I was in that short film, Foxy Lady short film. And I was just scared. You know, I, he was bigger than life. And I was this little 17-year-old virgin. I just could not do it. Well, so that's, I, although I wound up spending years seeing the bass player in the band, Noel Redding, I still kind of wish... <laughs> <laughs> I might, I might have had Hendrix be my first. Well, I mean, I don't know. Oh my God. I will say, like, we saw that like plaster cast, yeah. and I don't, I don't know if he would have been a good first. There was a lot, yeah. It just. <laughs> oh yeah, I was in that movie, Plaster Cast. Yeah, no, yeah. I know, but we saw the we, we saw the, the Hendrix collection. mold. We saw the Hendrix yes, mold. Yes, I've held on to that mold. That was a lot. <laughs> That's as close as I got. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like the real lesson here is like never put your stock in a man named Marty. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Oh. Um, so I also think it's really great that you run these women-only writing workshops. And I'm wondering, like, what teaching has taught you about writing? Because I know it's a different way to approach it. Well, teaching has made me an, a halfway decent public speaker. I was always afraid of speaking. Like everybody, it's the biggest fear. But now I have no trouble you know, and I'm actually starting to plan a one-woman show <gasps> where nice. I get up and tell all my stories, and who knows what else I'll do up there. But um, <laughs> it's really helped me in that way. But it's it's been the most incredible experience, really, of my life teaching these women because I don't really teach. I just allow people to be themselves in this room, safe with like-minded women, kindred spirits who have a lot to say. So uh, I've been doing it for 18 years. And the way it happened was I had to thank Moon again yesterday. Moon Zappa turned me on to one of her writing teachers 20 years ago. I went to this class and halfway through it, I realized I, sh I could be teaching it. So nice. that's what triggered the idea of me teaching write, uh, writing workshops. And and I've been doing it now for 18 years. And I now I've, I teach in Toronto and London as well as many, many cities in America. And the only way I, I talk about it is on my website, which is PamelaDayBar.com and on my Facebook page. And anyone can follow me there to find out about classes. I have tons of them coming up. And I have girls who have been coming for 10 years and girls who just start. So it's, it's magical because they connect with their stories and their feelings and they become best friends, lifelong friends. I mean, it's just been the most exquisite thing in my life, these writing classes. Well, and your students just seem to adore you. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They do. <laughs> Which I'm really happy about. I did, I've done doing something right. And that's my fifth book. That's another thing I'm pretty proud of. I've written five books. That's awesome. I'm about to, I'm, you know, about to write another one, Sex, God, and Rock and Roll, which is my spiritual quest, which Ooh. has been ongoing right side by side with my rock and roll quest. People buy it. You yeah. never know. You never know. People think you're a wealthy person if you write books. Yeah, but very you're few not, writers no. are wealthy. Yeah. We all, yes. I am not Stephen King, although I'd like to sit on his lap. 
Oh, well, I bet he'd let you. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure that could be arranged. <laughs> He's afraid of me. I've met him a couple of times with the rock bottom remainders and he goes, oh, like I'm going to jump his bones or something. Oh my God. <laughs> I feel like if you like could take a time machine back, you know. 40 years to yeah. when he was just like coked up in a trailer, he would have been fine. <laughs> well, he's been married to the same lady for a long time. And I, I do avoid married people. Excellent. It's a good, it's a good rule to live by, I would say. <laughs> I don't want to wreck anybody's life. No, it keeps your nose clean. But I would sit on his lap. Sure. That's fine. Innocent. <laughs> Santa Claus is married. Sa- I mean, Pamela. Santa Claus is married. I mean, and <laughs> yes, think of all the. <laughs> I have a lot of heroes. I love Stephen King. I have a lot of dead heroes, a lot of dead writers I just worship, like Kerouac and Henry Miller. Mm-hmm. And Walt Whitman is like a god to me. Well, I, I'll say that um, our coworker, Julianne, when I told her we were interviewing you, was so thrilled. Yeah. And she was like, she is the best rock memoirist. Like, she sets the Aww. standard. She so it, she was, ex- yeah, she was really excited. You have people excited. who feel the same way about you. Exactly. Which is, oh, thank you. Yeah. Do you feel like... Can anyone write a memoir regardless of what their life experience is? Absolutely. Edna St. Vincent Millay, right? True. She she was a very quiet lady uh, who, who you know, seemed like she wouldn't have a lot to say. Emily Dickinson, especially. Right. I mean, had the most profound things to say. It doesn't matter. I think every life is worth telling. I really believe that we all have something to say to each other. So I I think memoir is a really incredibly important way to express yourself, whether whether you just keep it for yourself or your family or friends, just get yourself down there, you know, save yourself. That's what it's about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yes, I think everyone can write a memoir. And, and yes, some people are in quotes, born writers, but you can also become a writer. I thought the prompts that you give and Let It Bleed are really, they're both helpful, but also very accessible, which is great because I think it's very scary mm-hmm. to start writing. Yeah, I tried to make it simple. I tried to simplify the process and make it fun. And also, it, you, you know, you learn so much. People write in class, they'll write things and then just their jaws are dropped about what they've written, what about what they've said, about what they've come out with and how it's cleaned them out somehow. It's been so profound for me. I I, it, I love it. I, I have ongoing classes in LA too that people can just sign up and join. And I also have gigs in my backyard. Oh, um, and, I, and I, I, it's open to everyone. I just put my address on Facebook. My ex-husband thinks I'm, I'm out of my mind. <laughs> and I just have people come, you know, I, I, I show People I love in L.A. And, and, and other other bands come and just play in my yard. Who you know they they're traveling, they're on the road, and I'll invite them to come play in my backyard. I give them all you know. I charge ten bucks and I give give them all the money, and you know I'll do that until I can't breathe anymore. <laughs> well, I mean, you yeah. haven't gotten where you are by being closed off and unadventurous. Yeah, so exactly. I don't know why you stop now. Where am I, by the way? <laughs> I, you say you haven't gotten where you are. Where am I? I mean, you're in Reseda. You're in Reseda. <laughs> Back in Reseda, you know, and I'm a pretty happy chick. So. Yeah, I guess that I just mean you're it happy. seems like you have you have a lot of joy and you've lived this really epicurean life, which 
a life with very few regrets, which I think is a rarity. I don't have any regrets. Exactly. Except for Marty. Except for, right. <laughs> well, well, I did, I, like I said, what I didn't do, because, you know, I could have met Elvis, too. Yeah. And, you know, I had that, t- right, right when I got engaged to Michael, uh, his friend Larry Geller, um, his hairdresser and spiritual advisor, Larry, who I've known forever, called and asked me if I would like to come up and watch TV <laughs> with Elvis and the boys, right? Jesus. I said no, because I just got engaged, mm. and, I, and I knew I might succumb mm. to the king. Mm-hmm. Sure. I mean, who among us And then, us of course, later, not? Michael said, are you nuts? You should have gone up there. But anyway, I didn't. So that's, I guess that's a regret, but it's for something I didn't do. Pamela, thank you, thank you so, so much. much for giving us okay. your time. Okay, yeah. well, thank you, dolls. This has been wonderful. Thank you. Take Bye. Care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Dirtcast, and thank you to Pamela Debar. Our show is produced by Levi Sharp with editorial oversight by Kate Drees. Modern Amofidi is our executive director of audio. Our theme music is by Stuart Wood. This episode was mixed by Jamie Colazzo. If you want to send us a tip or just let us know what you think, hit us up at dirtcast at jezebel.com. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts.